0: Hey, my name's Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Shelter Cove. And I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I firmly believe you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be inspired, but most of all that God's going to do something through this message that's going to move you closer to Jesus. Thanks again for tuning in. Good to see you all. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to go to verse 30. Now, that's just five verses, but when you're talking about Romans 8... God packs a lot into five verses in Romans chapter 8, okay? So there's a lot to get through today, which means you're going to have to listen fast, okay? Can you listen fast today? Because we got a lot of people to baptize afterward. But Romans 8 is a chapter that is really geared toward the Christian. A lot of times we do messages here that are designed to meet pretty much everybody wherever they are in life, but this is really a message geared toward the believer, and that's because it deals with the process by which God shapes you and molds you and crafts you into the image of Jesus Christ, okay? So this is a message for Christians. Now, having said that, uh, I want to start with one question here at the top from your notes, and it's this, what are two things that believers uniquely benefit from. And the first thing that we benefit from as Christians is we benefit from the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit figure prominently into your Bible? He absolutely does. And we often think of Him as being uh, primarily in the New Testament. All right? But that's not necessarily the case. We see Him in the Old Testament as well. In fact, if you were to go all the way back to Genesis... Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter in your Bible, in verse 1, we see God created the heavens and the earth. And it's in verse 2 that we meet the Holy Spirit. It says that there in verse 2, the Spirit of God moved over the face of the darkness. And what is he doing there? He's about to bring life and light and order. Is he still doing that today in people's lives? Yes, he is. He's all about transformation all throughout scripture and not just in the New Testament. As I said, if you go back to Exodus, God raises up Moses and Moses is going to deliver the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. But to do that, God has to put his spirit on Moses, right? Later, Moses says, God, I need some help. And God says, give me 70 of your men they come from among uh, their midst there. And God says, I'm going to take the same spirit I put on Moses. I'm going to put it on these guys. And he does. And later we see the Israelites up in the promised land once again. And during the time of the judges, God then raises up people like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And without exception, each of these men are able to do what God has asked them to do because of the spirit empowering them to do that. Later in the time of kings. God gives Israel a king at long last. He raises up their first king by the name of Saul. Saul is not a religious man. And God says, Saul is a sign of my anointing of you. I'm going to put my spirit on you and you will become another man. That's exactly how it's phrased. And when he does that, this non-religious guy, Saul begins to prophesy about the glory of God. And people barely recognize him anymore because of the spirit. Later, we see the Israelites once again enslaved, this time by the Babylonians. And they're down in Babylon. God puts his spirit on a man named Daniel. And he makes him into a great prophet, like the world had never seen. Those Israelites are released from there. They go back to their homeland, their war-torn city, and they see their destroyed temple. And Zerubbabel says, I'm going to rebuild that temple. And God encourages him, saying, you're going to do this not by might, not by Power, but by my spirit. That's right. And so the spirit is what empowers all throughout scripture. In the New Testament, Jesus, the quintessential prophet, priest, and king, how does he begin his public ministry? He is baptized in the Jordan and God descends in the form of the Holy Spirit like a dove and he anoints him, ascribes authority to him. So then he goes and he completes his work on the cross and he dies and he rises from the dead. And he, before he ascends back to the father, he says to his disciples there on the Mount of Olives, he says, guys, don't leave town. Stay right here. Okay, wait, wait for what? Wait for my Spirit to come to you. Why? Because they're going to need the Holy Spirit to do what God is going to have them do and establish the church and evangelize the world. Amen. And that is the theme throughout Scripture with regard to the Holy Spirit is that he transforms and he changes the lives of people so they are more than they ever could have been without him. And that is the theme of Romans chapter 8. And we're going to read uh, the first verse together. Would you stand with me? Just going to read verse 26 here as we get started. Paul writes, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Isn't that good right there? I could pray and say amen and send you home and you'd have enough to chew on just because of the truth packed into that one verse. We could linger on that all week long in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're going to unpack that in just a moment. Would you bow with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, even more for your spirit. And we're going to need them both today, God. We're going to need your spirit to help us uh, understand and interpret your word. And Lord, we need the spirit to help us apply and live out your word. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I'm going to show you something interesting right now about that verse that we just read. Together. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, in the original language of Greek in which this was written, one of these words here does not appear. Can you guess which one it is? It's this one right here. It's the word in. In. That does not appear in the original language when this verse was written. And so, literally, the way this should translate is in the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness. Now, why did the translators put the word in in there? I don't know. I think that maybe they thought they were being helpful, that they thought it would help convey the spirit of this verse right here. I disagree. I think that the way to translate this best is the spirit helps our weakness. Now, why is that superior? Because when you say the spirit helps us in our weakness, I believe there's an implication that you and I as Christians are somehow we're just trucking on down the road of life and we're doing just fine. Thank you very much. And every once in a while we hit a bump in the road and we get a little off kilter and we need help. And it's in those occasions, those temporary instances of weakness, that the Spirit is available to us, and He can step in if needed and help us get us back on our feet, dust us off, and we can kind of get situated and say, Thank you, Spirit, I've got this. And we move on down the road on our own power. Is that what Paul is saying in this verse? That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that you and I are occasionally weak. He's saying that we are always weak. All right. And that's the first thing that I want you to see in your notes is that the spirit's help is constantly necessary because we are constantly weak. Anybody weak in here today? Now, are you occasionally weak? Or are you always weak? Let me help you out. You are always weak, all right? Now, if you don't know that, that's a problem. We got to fix that problem right now. You have to acknowledge that you are always weak. And that's what Paul had to do. And if Paul had to do that, you and I definitely have to do that. You may recall that Paul had a weakness that he talked about in 2 Corinthians. He describes a weakness. Now, he is a little vague about what that was. He called it his thorn in the flesh. Do you remember this? He describes a thorn in the flesh. Now, what was it? Well, we don't, we don't really know. Uh, some people assume that it was a physical issue that he had, maybe bad eyesight or something like that. Other people say, well, maybe it was a temptation. That he had, I, I actually kind of gravitate toward that. I think that that could have been what it was, but we don't know. And I think that it's intentional that he doesn't describe specifically what this thorn in the flesh was, because I know Christians well enough to know that if he was specific about it, there are some of us who, if we suffered from the same thing, we'd think we were pretty special, because that's what Paul suffered from. And so we're special because we suffer from the same thing. And so he doesn't spell it out, but here's what we do know. We know that whatever it was, he tells the church at Corinth that on three occasions, he asked God to take it away. Does God take it away? He does not take this thorn in the flesh from Paul. And we see in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. He doesn't say my power is made perfect in your temporary occasions of weakness. He says my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm not going to take this from you. You are constantly weak and my power is made perfect when you recognize that. And Paul's response is, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that's the takeaway for you and I. We should acknowledge our weakness at all times so that Christ's power rests on us at all times. You see, Christ's power is not manifested in the simple fact of your weakness. It is manifested when you acknowledge your weak state at all times. That's what Paul wants us to know right here off the bat, okay? And he goes on to focus on one specific area in our life as Christians where we are always weak, and it has to do with prayer. Look what he says. He says, we do not know what we ought to pray for. We don't know what to pray for. Now, you see what he's doing? Paul is taking what is arguably the easiest part of the Christian life. There's a lot of difficult things in the Christian life, right? Is that true? If I were to point out here at random and I were to pick one of you and I were to motion for you to come up here and preach the gospel to this group right here, some of you would wet your pants, right? Because some of you are deathly afraid of getting up in front of people. I saw a list uh, of the top fears that people have a few years ago. You know what number one was? Speaking in public. Number two was death. How afraid of speaking in public are some people, huh? What about sharing your faith with another person one-on-one? Is that Can that be a little intimidating? Yeah, some of us are scared of that. Now, some people, they're gifted in those areas. They got no problem. Some of us have big mouths, and we'll get up here, and we'll yap in front of anybody. It doesn't matter. And I believe that the Spirit can help all of us in Christ to do those things. But those are understandably challenging things. Those are not easy things, Right? Paul is not describing those things. He's describing prayer. Prayer is not a horizontal activity where you interact with other people. It's a vertical activity where you don't have to speak. All you got to do is think, right? And Paul's saying, we can't even do that. We are weak when it comes to that. Now, is prayer powerful? The Bible says that prayer is powerful. Jesus says, "Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do." Now that's power. Right there, whatever you ask, he'll do it. Now the caveat is, you got to ask it what? In his name, right? Now that's that's more than just tacking on a "in Jesus name" at the end of your prayer, okay? It's not like, "Dear Lord, I really need a Lamborghini in Jesus name." Amen. Right? That's not what we're talking about. When you pray in his name, you are praying for his name in accordance with his purpose, with his will, with his plan, right? If you do that, he will do it. It's got to be a part of his will. Here's the problem. We don't always know what that is. All right. That's what Paul is saying. We are weak because we don't know what that is because we're weak. So in that instance, Paul says the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do know what to, what to pray for. We do not know what to pray for. And so he says, the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He intercedes. What does it mean to intercede? To intercede is to intervene on behalf of someone. When you pray for someone else, you know what that's called? That's called intercessory prayer. That's what that is. When you pray for yourself ask God for things for yourself, that's called petitionary prayer. And then there's nothing wrong with that. But when you pray for others, you are interceding for them. Paul is saying that the Spirit is interceding for you. The Spirit is praying for you. Is that good to know? Man, it's always good to know when somebody's praying for you. But listen, to know that the Holy Spirit is praying for you That is powerful stuff right there. And it says that he does this. How through wordless groans. What does that mean? Some of your versions say in groanings too deep for words. Interesting. Now, when I read this, I, I'm reminded of some of my my brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement. Okay, uh, they read a verse like this, and they they say wordless groans. What that's talking about right there? That's talking about speaking in tongues, praying in tongues. Uh, now, if you don't know what that is, if you've ever been to a charismatic church or Pentecostal church, something like that, you may have encountered this. You may have heard people speaking or praying, and it uh, it sounds foreign to you. Sounds like gibberish, perhaps. Uh, it's not English. Okay, and that is. Right rather emphasized in those circles. Now, I am not here to preach about tongues. We're not going to talk about or debate whether tongues have ceased or whether they're still active today or any of that stuff. What I do want to say is that this verse is not talking about tongues. It's not talking about speaking in tongues, okay? First of all, here's the misconception about tongues. The Greek word for tongues in Scripture is the word glossalia. Glossolia means languages. What are languages made up of? They're made up of words. That's right. What kind of groans are these? Wordless groans. No words involved in these, okay? So I don't care what language you're talking about, English, French, Spanish, even if you're talking sign language, each sign represents a word, right? And so language by definition, be it supernatural, sign, uh, linguistic, it, they are based on words. These are wordless Groans. Furthermore, who is it doing the groaning? Is it you? No. In this instance, it's the Spirit. So what is happening is you are in prayer. Alongside you is the Holy Spirit, and he is relaying to the Father supernaturally what the Father needs to hear that you are unable to articulate using the various combinations of the 26 letters of the English alphabet. Are you with me? This is an this is a language, this was is a communication beyond human expression. You cannot articulate what the spirit is doing. It is 100% supernatural. Very very interesting. Now, he does this on our behalf. It's not simply because we don't know how to say it. It's not simply because we don't know how to. what are the exact words that we need to put in place. That's not how God works. He's not up there waiting for us to say the exact words. He's not listening to us going, come on, come on. I can't move until you say it exactly right. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, you're almost there. You're almost there. Oh, that's not it. You're so close. Try it again. Try it again. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Holy Spirit supernaturally communicating to the Father. And Paul says in verse 27 that he who searches our hearts. Now, who is that? That's God the Father right there. God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. How does he know the mind of the Spirit? Because they are unified. You see, they are both divine. They are members of the Godhead, of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. They are unified with regard to his divine will. He knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. All right. So in your notes, the spirit's relationship to the father allows him to pray for us in ways that we cannot because we don't always know the will of God as we pray. Not specifically. Did you know that you don't always pray according to the will of God? I don't always pray according to the will of God. I know that. I admit that. Now, I don't intentionally pray against the will of God. I'm not trying to do that. I'm doing the best I can. I, 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 I try to stay in the scripture and I try to uh, learn and understand what his will is as spelled out specifically in the word. And when I encounter a situation, I assess it with the brain that he gave me. And I use the knowledge and the wisdom that I have access to in the word. And I make a judgment call and I pray as I think God would have me pray. And sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I pray according to the will of God. But often I pray according to the will of Scott. All right. And as much as I've tried to convince my wife, those are not the same thing all the time. All right. All right. But that's how it works. Now, some people hear that and they get all anxious about it. They say, well, I don't don't, don't want to pray outside of the will of God. All right. It's okay. You can pray. You can pray specifically. But sometimes people are a little nervous about that. And so they just default to that familiar, Lord, let your will be done. Amen. Right? You ever do that? We do that sometimes. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But listen, don't be afraid to pray specifically. Ask God for what you want or what you think he wants. It's okay. You say, well, what if, what if I'm praying for something and it's not in God's will? Well, then he won't do it. And it's okay. And if you happen to pray that way and it's not in his will, good news, you've got the Holy Spirit interceding for you. You get it? You with me? All right, so that is a blessing that we have, all right? And it's all about the will of God. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. And so he's given us the spirit to make sure that intercession is made according to his will. Now, there's a word that we associate with the will of God. It's the word sovereignty. And this is the second thing that we benefit from uniquely as believers. It's the sovereignty of God. All right, God is sovereign. What does that mean? That means that he's in complete control. There's nothing that he does not know. He sees the beginning, the middle, the end, sees it all at once. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's in total control. He is sovereign. Paul speaks to that sovereignty in verse 28. Look at verse 28. He says this. He says, and we know. Now notice the contrast between what he's just said. (laughs) He just finished saying, we don't know what to pray for. But here's what we do know. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, isn't that a good verse? Everybody loves that verse right there. That's, that's a refrigerator magnet verse. Amen? That's a greeting card verse. That's a crocheted pillow verse right there. You know it. You've memorized it. You've said it. You've quoted it. You've encouraged people with that verse. We all love God works all things for our good. Amen? Now, here's what I want to say to you. If you have interpreted that verse without reading the next verse, there's a good chance that you have interpreted that verse wrong. All right, because what you need to know to understand what it means that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose to know what all things being worked together means you have to know what his purpose is. What is his purpose? The next verse reveals it. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a question. Is Paul saying here that all things are good? Are all things good? Is it all good in the world today? Is the world a good place in total? No. The world is a pretty crummy place, isn't it? And scripture confirms that. Jesus confirms that. There's a verse I remember from my childhood quite well. Uh, when I was in Sunday school as a, as a little boy, I remember a contest that we had. Where all of the Sunday school class, if, if, if you memorized the most Bible verses within a certain amount of time, you got a prize. And we got to pick the Bible verses. And so everybody's trying to mem- uh, memorize the most Bible verses as much as they can. And on week one, every kid comes in there having memorized John eleven thirty five, 35. Jesus wept. Done. Mark it down. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. So we all came in. And hot on the heels of that was 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. That's two points. Woo! Bag it. All right? Now, two shortest verses in the Bible. Here's what's interesting. One of them deals with weeping. The other deals with rejoicing. Coincidence? I don't know, but I know this. They both carry a powerful truth that pertains to this verse. Right here. Jesus wept. Listen, folks, if Jesus is weeping, all things are not good. Okay? Why is Jesus weeping? He is reacting to the reality of a fallen world, a broken world, because what had just happened when he wept? His good friend Lazarus had died. And so Jesus wept because he's acknowledging the reality of, of pain and suffering and evil in the world that death exists in our world. So this is a fallen world. That's the world that we live in. And so in light of that, we read that he works all things together for good. What does that mean in a fallen world? Does that mean that he's going to fix all your problems? Does that mean that man, I just lost my job, but he's working all things together for my good. So I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get that job back that relationship is going to get healed i'm going to you know i'm going to get that house that i've been wanting you know i'm going i'm gonna, i'm going to get all these things and they're going to be just to my liking because of my identity in christ that is not what that means Because you got to understand, what does it mean that he works it all together for good? It's according to his purpose. What is the purpose to which we have been called? We see it in the next verse. Look at verse 29. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I want you to highlight this word conformed right here in in your Bible. That is where your attention should be to be conformed to the image of his son. What is the purpose of God for your life? It's to be conformed to the image of his son. And in order to accomplish that purpose, he will work together all things in your life, no matter what they are the good, the bad, the happy, the sad, the easy, the challenging, whatever it is. He is going to use them to mold you, to shape you into the image of Christ, and to bring you into relationship closer with Him, because in your notes, God doesn't promise that all our problems eventually go away. He promises that He will use all issues of life to draw us closer to Him. All right? Whatever it is, good or bad, He's using it to draw you into relationship. It's a relationship. Those who love Him, that's relational language right there. And so even the difficult times, He's using it. That's what Romans 8 28 means you see now wait a minute does that mean that God is causing suffering in my life does that mean that God took my loved one from me does that mean that God caused me to lose my job does that mean that God gave me cancer is that what all this means that's not what I'm saying I'm saying that God is sovereign even though we live in a broken world where evil is a reality where death is a reality where our hearts get broken where relationships fail Where we lose our jobs, where our bodies get sick, and sometimes we don't get better. God is sovereign and perfect in a world that is not perfect. And He can use it all for His purpose. And His ultimate purpose is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Hard to accept sometimes, but it's for our our best interests, according to His purpose. Jesus said to Peter, He said, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. Now, I I don't know what that means, but if I'm Peter, a chill just went down my spine, right? Now notice, Satan has to ask permission to do this to Peter. So if you're Peter, what's the next thing that you want to hear from Jesus? (laughs) But don't worry, I'm not going to give him permission. Is that what Jesus says to Peter? No. Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you. Oh. (laughs) Great. What? That's not what we want to hear. What do we want to hear in life? We want to hear, my child, I'm not going to let anything bad happen to you ever. That's what we want to hear, right? Is that what we get from God all the time? No. Often we get what Peter got, which is, you know, Satan has asked to mess with you. And I'm going to let him, I'm going to let him, but don't worry because the Holy Spirit has prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And that is in accordance with my purpose for your life. And you're going to come out the other side and you're going to be better than you've ever been because you're going to look more like Jesus and you're going to be closer to me. That's sovereignty. That's the wisdom of God. And it must tick Satan off that he can throw all he can at you and God can use it to make you more like Jesus Christ. Amen? Come on. So where's your purpose? Where's your focus? It's on that word conformed, right? That's where your focus in those verses ought to be is on the word conformed. Unfortunately, a lot of my friends in ministry do not focus on the word conformed because I've got a lot of friends in ministry, a lot of pastor friends who are of a reformed uh, theological tradition and their immediate attention does not go here. It goes here to the word predestined, and they see it there, and then they see it in the next verse, in verse 30, where it says, and those he predestined, there it is again, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified, and they focus and fixate on that word predestined, why? Because in Reformed theology, in Calvinist theology, predestination is emphasized, now what is predestination? If you're not familiar, predestination in Reformed theology is the emphasis. uh, Doctrine whereby in eternity past God in his sovereignty elected some throughout human history to come to faith in Christ and he has predestined them for heaven. And so all Christians are chosen in eternity past, has nothing to do with your free will, has only to do with the sovereignty and the election of God, His His holy decree, and you come to Christ, you are always going to come to Christ, and you will go to heaven, and there's nothing in your will that has anything to do with it. It's the decree of God. Now, here's where it gets a little hard for people to swallow because as we think about that concept, they start to work it out, and they start to recognize, wait a minute, not everybody... Is a Christian. That means if we're all chosen, we who are Christians, that means he chose us, some of us, for salvation, which means he didn't choose everybody for salvation. And the logic will take you to the question Does that mean that God predestined some for hell? You see how this gets a little hairy for people? Now, let me just stop right here. I'm not doing a sermon on predestination. Don't have time to do it justice. Wouldn't have time if I had a whole sermon to dedicate to this topic. But I do want to say one thing to you. There is no scripture anywhere in your Bible that supports the concept that God predestines people for hell. All right? You need to understand that right now. That word predestined is never uh, accompanied by anything related to condemnation, damnation, or hell anywhere. Predestined in scripture is always there in conjunction with salvation. All right? So let's get that right, right out the gate. Secondly, that said, there is a wealth of scripture that supports the concept of God choosing people for salvation. It's a thing. All right? You see verse after verse after verse, that God elected some for salvation. A lot of verses supporting that man's salvation is the result of God's sovereignty and the election, that He chose us for salvation. OK? Now, there is also a wealth of verses that support that man's salvation is, at least in part, the result of man coming in his own free will to God and choosing to follow Jesus Christ as savior. And this is where people's heads start to explode and they start to get all tied up in knots and they start to say, whoa, whoa, whoa! wait a minute, what, what's going on here? How do I reconcile these two things? I mean, is God sovereign or do I have a free will? Am I chosen or do I choose? And here's your answer. Yes. Yes. How can I say that? Because scripture offers us both concepts And you know what I do when scripture gives me two doctrinal concepts, I accept them and I teach them. You say, well, don't you have to understand how they work together? No, no. I do the best I can. I seek to understand them, but I have a limited capacity to do that because I got three pounds of fallen matter in my noggin right here. And I do the best I can, but I am just a man. And nobody's got this figured out. Scripture teaches a free will. It teaches the sovereignty of God. It teaches that we choose. It teaches that we are chosen. And God has it all worked out, and I'm okay with that. And I'm not smart enough or pompous enough to stand up here and tell you that I have it all figured out how that works, and none of you do either. And anybody who says that they do is either lying or they're highly confused. But you need to know something. Here's the deal whatever role, God has given your will to play in the process of you coming to faith. If you are a Christian, you need to know that you have been chosen. You have a chosen status in Christ Jesus. It is the result of God's sovereignty that he sovereignly chose you in your notes. You need to understand that the totality of the journey you are on as a Christian depends on a sovereign God. I want you to look at verse 30 one more time. He predestined those. Those he predestined. You had nothing to do with him predestining you for heaven. All right? He chose you in eternity past. Now, what does that look like? How did he choose you? He did not choose you based on your merits. Okay? had nothing to do with how good you look or how special you are in and of yourself, all right? It's that time of year where it's starting to get a little hot. And when it gets hot at my house, we like to eat watermelon. Everybody likes watermelon, right? We're all going to eat a lot of watermelon on the 4th of July coming up. And we all do the same idiotic things when we go and pick out a melon, don't we? We all pretend we know what we're doing. And we all go in there to select a melon, and the first thing we do is we slap it. Now, aren't you glad we don't pick our spouses that way? you slap the melon. Did that sound hollow? I did that. I think that sounded hollow. That's what I'm looking for. And I pick it up and and then I look underneath. Okay. Yeah. That's yellow under there. There's, yeah, that's a good yellow spot. Oh, look at the sugar spots. That's a sweet melon. Yeah. Let's take that. That's a good melon. Put that in there. We're going to buy that one. And you get it home, you cut it open and it's bland and grainy. What happened? I don't know. That is not how God chooses us. How does he choose us? He chooses us sovereignly. You were predestined in eternity past. And then those he predestined, he also called. He called you. How did he call you? Think of all of the things and the people and the events in your life that God sovereignly used to bring you on a journey to faith. And there was a point where you were convicted of your sin. How did that happen? Did it have anything to do with you? No, that was his spirit coming to you, convicting you, bringing you to awareness of your need. And then those he called, and he also justified. That that term justified is a judicial term. All right? It takes a righteous judge to justify you, to declare you righteous. You cannot declare yourself righteous. Only God can declare you righteous. And then those he justified, he also justified glorified. What is glorification? Believer, that is when one day in the future, you will stand before God and he will fully and finally redeem you, all of you, including your body, and you will be transformed. You will have a glorious resurrection body like that of Christ. And that is a future event. It has not yet happened. You do not have a glorious body yet. You can look around the room and see that that is a future event. It ain't happened yet. But here's what I love. Paul writes about it. In the past tense, why does he do that? Because it's a certainty. It's coming and there's nothing to stop it. You can't derail it. Nobody else can derail it. God keeps his promise. You will be glorified because he is sovereign. Amen. We need to trust in these two benefits, the work of the spirit and the sovereignty of God. But I don't think that all Christians actively do this in their life. It's possible for some people to come to faith, saving faith, and yet not practically walk in these two benefits. And let me tell you something in your notes, without relying on the Spirit and the sovereignty of God, listen to me. There is no practical difference between a believer and an unbeliever, there needs to be a difference. In your life, And that difference is manifested when you rely on the work of the spirit, the power of the spirit and the sovereignty of God. When you know your identity and you walk in that identity, you will experience power and victory in your Christian life. And you will be made to look more and more like Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not fire insurance, folks. Eternal life is not something that happens when you die. It began the moment you trusted Christ and he wants you to live now. Like you're going to live for eternity. I'm going to give you in closing four quick things here that you can do. Practical things. Number one, admit weakness and welcome the spirit's help. This is how his power is manifested in your life. When you acknowledge daily, I am weak and I need the Lord's strength. You can boast in your weakness like Paul and be made strong. Number two, be comforted by knowing that he prays on our behalf. Folks, this is how we can, as the writer of Hebrews said, boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence because you don't have to worry about articulating it just right. You've got a Holy Spirit in your corner who communicates and intercedes for you. Number three, trust God to work out the details of your present situation for his glory and purpose. No matter what's going on in your life. God is using it. He is with you. He has not left you and he will make you more into the image of his son throughout whatever you're going through. And number four, rest in the security of our salvation from beginning to end. You did nothing to gain your salvation and you can't do anything to lose it. You are firmly in the grasp of Jesus Christ right now. And that is a blessing. And we need to live all of that truth out each and every day.